Good morning, church. Great to see you. Let's do it again. Good morning. All right. Great to see you. Hey, do me a favor. Get your Bible. I'll turn with you to James chapter 2, verse 4. Thank you. I guess I could have carried that out. Um, but then I would have been huffing and puffing. So, uh, yeah, let's do this. So, yeah, I want to tell you this morning, get your Bible out. James chapter 2, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, it's probably one in a chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. Um, I want to tell you probably the nicest text that I ever received. I, uh, it came on a Sunday that we were having some sound issues. And there's a well-known preacher in America. His name's Stephen Furtick. And Stephen loves the gym. And uh, he's really fit, and he preaches in really tight, short sleeve shirts. And so we were having sound issues. So we're having sound issues this morning. Our board has the blue screen of death. That happened somewhere between practice and the 8 a.m. service. So we had to make a choice. We either had to reboot the system and pray to God it rebooted or leave it the way it was. So we decided to leave it the way it was, all right? So I'm using a handheld, and, and I preach with a lot of passion and fervor, which means I'm going to be really hot, and there's nothing they can do about it, all right? So I'm going to try to tone myself down, and you guys will have to plug your ears. And so this happened years ago, and I was preaching with a handheld, and I happened to be preaching in a short sleeve service, short sleeve shirt. And after the service, Matt Kerr texted me the nicest text I ever said, got. He said, your biceps look like Stephen Furtick. And, uh, and so I, if I'd have known I was using a handheld today, Matt, I would have been in my short sleeve shirt, right? And, uh, but uh, so that's the deal, okay? Two things I want to highlight this morning. Uh, of course, it's Father's Day, but there's probably something you may not know that I want to highlight and uh, I like to use our, our federal national holidays a lot of times as an opportunity to pray for our country. And, uh, and there's a new holiday or a new federal recognition that maybe a lot of you don't know about. And I just want to highlight it. It's actually today. Today is actually, of course, it's Father's Day. And we're going to celebrate dads in a minute. But it's actually Juneteenth. And I think a lot of people don't know what Juneteenth is and why it became a national holiday. And I think it's worth pausing and remembering, and uh, and so so in 1863, uh, we have this horrible scourge in our country called slavery, and the Emancipation Proclamation set the slaves free. Uh, however, in the 1860s, we didn't have the internet, and so news like that took time to travel and implement. And in eight, I believe it's 1865. If I have my date wrong, uh, there's always a well in tune church member that sends me an email about all things I say that are wrong. And so, uh, yeah, so some of you will send this to me, but I think it's 1865. The final news of the Emancipation Proclamation reached all the way to Texas, and Texas was the final state that set a quarter million slaves free on June 19th. And so this has kind of been an unrecognized freedom holiday in our country. And the reason I wanted to pause and remember it this morning, one, it, it falls on today. Uh, two, I want to leverage that to, to pray for our country. Uh, and to remind that slavery always has its roots in sin, okay? And freedom always has its roots in the gospel. And so, and so as a culture, like, we're still trying to figure out, like, how do we overcome the sins of the past and be unified as a country? And so whenever somebody asks me, like, how do you think we come together as a country? You ready for my answer? It's the local church and the preaching of the gospel. And we talked about this last week. Like in the hearts of Christians, there's no room for partiality that we don't judge based on skin color, gender, socioeconomic class, right? And, and so it's all of us bowing a knee at the cross, understanding, man, I'm a broken sinner and I need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It ultimately unifies us. This is why I'm so passionate about the local church, right? And us spreading the local church. So, so I want to pray about that this morning and pray about just healing and the furthering of the gospel and remembering even our country's past, both its sins and the celebrate freedom uh, that, that has come 
uh, from slavery because there's no place for slavery. Uh, it's, it's an abomination to the Lord. Amen. And uh, secondly, we're going to pray over dads. Okay. So it's Father's Day. So if you're a dad, do me a favor, stand. Stand. We want to recognize you. Stay standing. We're going to pray over you. Love you guys. Amen. Give these guys a round of applause. Okay. And, um, I read an article this week, stay standing dads, I read an article this week that talked about the plight of fatherlessness in our country. There's so many fatherless children in our country, I, I forget, I'll, I'll get the numbers wrong, but it's like the number of fatherless in, in America right now is like, it'd be like four times the city of Los Angeles, right? Uh, it's just huge. And then the statistics around children that are fatherless, they're, they're more likely to be, have criminal record, they're more likely to be poorly in school, they're more likely to have mental illness, they're, it just goes on and on and on, and so, and it's no, it should be no shock to us as Christians, is that when we break down the family as God ordained it, it's going to have consequences, and so we know that God ordained the family, one man, one woman, committed relationship, and that that home is is a is probably the primary discipleship vehicle of raising our children in the Lord, and so men, by being here today, you're recognizing I'm a worshiper of Jesus. Thank you for being here and leading your home in that regard. And, uh, and so I want to pray over you. And so I really want to pray over the two things that we've recognized this morning. So if we can as a church, let's bow our heads and let's pray, okay? And so Heavenly Father, um, I want to say uh, thank you for many of the freedoms that we enjoy in this country, God. We We've really, really been blessed as a culture, and so we recognize, just like James said a couple weeks ago, all good things come down from the Father of lights, God. We would not have many of the blessings and the freedoms that we have if not for you. God, we recognize that we don't live in a perfect country, and and even the sins of the past, God, they in some ways have, have their tentacles that as a culture, we're trying to figure out how to untangle and reconcile and and here's why I get so excited about the local church, God. The ultimate hope of unity in our country is the preaching of the gospel, the spread of the fame of Christ to everybody in our nation, Lord, and the local church where we are unified at the foot of the cross. We all express our need of sin and brokenness, and we all express our need of saving from our Savior. And so, God, I do pray for the leaders of our country to be men and women that seek godly wisdom and build a country on the truth of the scriptures and not undermine uh, what you have given us. And one of the things, God, that we recognize that is being undermined in our culture is the home, God, the family is being torn apart and being attacked as you have designed it, God. And so it would also be natural to then see the consequences of that sin as well, God. And so I want to thank you for the men here today. These men that got up this morning said, there's a family. We're going to go worship the Lord. Uh, we've got dads standing here. We've got granddads standing here. We probably have some great-grandfathers standing here, God. I thank you so much that they're worshipers of you. And I pray for their homes. I pray especially for the families of young children, God, that are bringing up their children in the Lord, God. I pray that you would... Give them spiritual strength and blessing, God, and, and grow their children. And God, as a father myself, Lord, I know there's many, many faults and sins and gaps in my own parenting. And so I pray for the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ to fill in those gaps, Lord, and make up the difference of our sinful failings. And we trust you in that. 
We thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Give these men a round of applause. Thank you. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Uh, I think on the way out, there's donuts for dads. So make sure you pick up a donut. Ladies get flowers. Men get fat. Okay. So, um, and don't take them all. I'd like to take a whole box home. Anyway, I'm just kidding. And get, get a donut for dad on the way out. Okay. A couple things. Next week, too, is our family worship. And so this is where we only have our child care through three years old. We do that a couple times a year just to give all of our laborers in the children's department a break. It's going to be a great service. We'll keep it moving for your kids that will be in here. And if you volunteer in our children's ministry, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, we could not do it. Our children's ministry is packed, and so thank you for serving. And then tomorrow, we've got our students going to camp. We have 107 students going to camp, so be praying for them. Very, very exciting. And, uh, and so, yeah, let's, uh, so of course, we want to pray for their safety, but we also want to pray that God does some really uh, amazing things in their hearts and lives while they're at camp. Speaking of kids, I remember uh, when my kids were non- younger, and we're going to transition now to the sermon, so be ready. Here we go. Okay, so I remember when my kids were younger, um, there would be an occasional Saturday where I'd get up, and I had two boys close in age, and I would be like, hey, guys, listen, today is, um, you know, we're going to do some outdoor chores. That always went over like a lead balloon. I, in hindsight, I probably should have given them a week's notice, right, so they could think about it, like, hey, next Saturday's chore day. Maybe it wouldn't have helped. But anyway, you get up on Saturday morning, you know, it's like, hey, guys, we got to get up and do the chores. And then there would usually, and, and what I'm about to tell you, and it was my experience, there's also a, a story that Jesus told. And every time I read the story of Jesus, I'm like, that's 100% true. Of course, it's Jesus. All the stories are true. So anyway, but like, you know, but it was also my experience. And, and so, hey, guys, today's, uh, today's chore day. We're going to go outside and do some chores. And one kid would just start grumbling, right? Like, oh, I'm not doing chores. I'm, I'm really busy. I'm watching cartoons, you know, and like really busy. And, and then the other kid would be like, yeah, Dad, I'll be right out. And so I'd go outside and get started. And, and what would inevitably happen is the kid that was grumbling and didn't want to do it would be the kid that would come out. And help, and the kid that was super sweet, like, yeah, Dad, I can't wait, I'll be right out, would never come out, right? And like, I'd wait for an hour, and I'd be like, where are they? And I'd be out there by myself. And, and Jesus, in telling a very similar story, what does he say? Which kid actually did what the father wanted, right? It's a kid that came out and grabbed, picked up a rake and said, let's go to work, right? That was the kid that obeyed the father. And, and so in a similar way, James is bringing us as G- followers of Jesus to a similar conclusion that uh, we can't say that we have faith and there not be some life change, right? That there's not some walking in holiness and righteousness and obedience and, and, and some growth. And so... This morning, I'm, I'm just going to take you to the end of my sermon. I'm not ending my sermon, okay? I'm taking you to the end. We're going to get there, okay? Uh, we're going to basically hold up the mirror this morning and say, man, does my life in its actions reflect the faith that I say that I have, okay? And so, and so you know, the old preacher story of, uh, you know, if, if you were put on trial, for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You know, there's some parts of the illustration I don't love, but I think there's some parts that are worth considering. Like, man, is my life uh, on the regular uh, displaying what I say that I believe? Now, this passage gives a lot of people heartburn, okay? Some people would say that James 
and the Apostle Paul are in conflict. I don't see that at all, but, but, uh, but the reason is, is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. A lot of you all know this passage where the Apostle Paul writes this, right? He says, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, verse 9, not as a result of what? What's it say, church? Not as a result of what? Works, right? So that nobody can brag about. So our salvation, Paul here is unpacking the doctrine of justification that in order to go to heaven, we have to be perfect. Since none of us are perfect, we need the perfect works of Christ credited to us by grace alone through faith alone. So we're actually saved by the works of Christ that are gifted to us by grace through faith. So we're not saved by our own works. However, James chapter 2, we're gonna, I'm pulling this one verse out of context because we're going to see this a little later in the chapter. <clears throat> James 2.24, you see, James says, that a person is justified by what? Works, not by faith alone. Well, Pastor Sean, which is it, right? Paul, which is it? James, which is it? Now, uh, Paul is dealing <clears throat> with people, religious folks, that uh, are saying that they're saved by keeping the law, right? And this is what we looked at last week when we were talking about partiality. Why did James, in the middle of this idea of not judging by partiality, bring the law into it? Because we're supposed to look at the law of God and and not think, man, I've kept it all perfectly. We're supposed to look at the law of God and go, man, I've fallen short, and therefore I need Christ, okay? And so Paul, when he says you're not saved by works, is talking to people who think they can be saved by keeping the law, right? And so Paul is opposing what, what I, the language I would use of being of works righteousness, that we're saved by the things that we do. James here, however, is a dealing with the issue of what I might call easy believism. Like I just walk an aisle, check a box, raise a hand during a prayer at a church service or at a camp, and now I'm, you know, I'm good to go. It's kind of like Jesus becomes fire insurance, if you will, right? And there's no life change. And so James is really opposing that. And so for me, James and Paul never caused me any heartburn, but I'm usually the dumbest one in the room. I call it, my life's kind of lived on keep it simple, stupid, right? And so, so, so for me, this is really easy. <clears throat> James is just teaching the idea that, that what we do reveals who we are or what we really believe. And so a, James is saying that a person that professes Christ as Savior also lives a life that honors Christ and also lives a Christ-honoring <clears throat> uh, and obeying lifestyle. And if we're not doing that, at least we should consider that the possibility is there that our faith is indeed a fraudulent faith, okay? And so we need to do that. Now, the challenge is, if you're like me, even as a Christian, you still live imperfectly, right? And so even when, as a person who's been a follower of Jesus for many, many decades now, when I sin, I still sometimes, as I'm looking in the mirror of God's holiness, like, how can I still do that after all of these years? Any of y'all... Go that route sometimes, right? What is going on inside of me? I always think of Romans 7 where Paul wrestles with his own sin nature. He's like, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So at the end of the day, even as a Christian, I have to remind myself, man, I indeed need Jesus. Amen? So here we go. Let's look. So with that as introduction, let's jump in here and I'll move quickly. James chapter 2, verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says it's faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food? 
And one of you say to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled. Without giving them the things that is needed for the body, what good is that? So also is faith by itself. If it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, if you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe, and at least they shudder. Do you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works? Let me make a couple quick points. I know my mic's going in and out, so you guys need to be attuned, and, uh, and let's listen carefully. Okay, so here we go. Point number one, faith. James is telling us faith cannot be just an empty confession. You, you, it's just not verbal assent to follow Jesus. James chapter 2, verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Verbal assent without life change is not real faith. It's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the brother that hears that the father's asked him to do something and joyfully says, I'll be right out. And it doesn't come out. Jesus told us that story. Is that, does that, which, which brother did the will of the father? Well, the one that came out and did what the father asked. Faith that brings no works is of no profit. It's no good. It's, it's useless. Number two, James says that faith should not be a faith that has a false compassion. Listen, when you become a follower of Jesus and the Holy Spirit takes residence in your heart, and I, I say this a lot, like this is one of those moments, like uh, the Spirit in our heart begins to have us hate what God hates and love what God loves. Right? It changes us. We, we need to begin to have the eyes of the Father. We should... We should hate injustice and poverty and evil of all kinds. And we should love holiness and righteousness. This affects the kind of music you listen to. And this affects the videos that you put in your mind. And this affects what we do in our free time. And it affects what we laugh at. And it affects, you know, all of our lives, right? James says this in James chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We're, we're to have the scriptures, and I could take us through all the scriptures, I won't do it this morning, but we're to have, first of all, um, what I would call a family compassion. James here uses family language. He says, brothers. Actually, the scriptures say, and by the way, you guys are doing, as a church, like, you're doing some amazing things. I mean, I got to go to Puerto Rico today. Uh, I found out this morning, actually. Actually, yesterday, my wife said something about, so when I went to Puerto Rico, I told you that we did, we had a work week. I actually showed up at the tail end of the work week and literally did nothing, like nothing. Like, I just talked to people that were working in the house. And at the very end, as we were cleaning up, apparently, I picked up a ladder and put it into the truck to put away, and someone snapped a picture and went on social media. So it really looked like I really had my sleeves rolled up going to work. Um, but I was really just meeting with the leaders of the organizations that we're serving and just getting to know the organizations. And, uh, but you guys and this team, like, um, man, you, over the last year, you and some other teams with the organization we're working with, they rebuilt a house for a lady. Like, we, we didn't just say, hey, believe in Jesus and have no house. Like, you guys were a part of, like, let's believe in Jesus and we're going to build you a house. Incredible, right? Uh, the mission I just talked about in, in uh, uh, 
why am I drawing a blank? I'm not going to say it right. Uh, Bill, help me out. Miramar, I'm not saying, I can't say it right. Miramar is Top Gun, and Myanmar, I'll, I'll never say it right. Uh, but the, anyway, these orphans, the former former Burma is easier for me to say. Um, yeah, I won't, whatever, I won't say it right. I already know in my head I won't get, it won't come out right, so. Uh, I'll see whoever just said it right after the service. They'll say it right. So, um, but like these, ki- these are kids that are being conscripted to go to war. Kids. I-, I wish I could take you to the orphanage, and maybe next time we have a chance to go, you go. We don't go to Thailand every year because it is extremely expensive. But uh, if you get a chance to go and see the children uh, that you are helping to clothe and give the gospel, and now by God's grace, man, we have like. 20 to 50 more kids. We got to figure out how to house and clothe and get educated. And and that's part of what the luncheon's about next week. Like come and hear about it. See if God would move your heart. But we're to be a people of compassion. But our compassion actually doesn't just go to the rest of the world. It actually starts with those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why you have to be in a small group at Coastal. You're not going to have the actual human touches of meeting physical and spiritual needs in a, in a 900-seat auditorium. And I said this last week, like, you have to join a small group. And I, I probably need to do some videos of, you know, how, because I hear the stories all the time as a pastor of how small groups, how you're meeting the needs in your small group when there's a need, a, a physical need, uh, you're at people's houses fixing their houses, you're meeting financial needs, you're meeting spiritual needs, you're ministering to one another. Like, we are to be a compassionate people I even think about, like, when I talk about, like, how are we going to, with the sin of slavery in our past, how are we going to reconcile and have unity? It's in the local church as we get to know one another from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the planet, right? And we get personally relational, build relationships with one another, get to know one another, and realize a person from a different national background or a different skin color has the same needs and brokenness of Jesus and love and care and compassion that I have. Isn't that great? And so why do I get passionate about the church? Because this is where unity is going to come about. You have to be in a small group and get to know different people so that we can be a compassionate people. We're to have family compassion. Compassion shows evidence of regeneration, James says. How do we know if we've been born again, if we have the, the faith of Christ in us? Man, we become compassionate for people in need. Right? You guys know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The story of the Good Samaritan is a story that Jesus told. There was a lawyer that came to Jesus, and much like the rich young ruler, which I talked about last week, he almost asked the same question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the great commandment. He goes, yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and Jesus says, well, do that, and you should be fine, right? And so the Bible, the lawyer says, wishing to justify himself because he knew he hadn't loved his neighbor, he says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story, right? And he tells the story of a guy that goes on a journey. He gets beat up by, by thieves, and he gets left for dead on the side of the road. And a Levite comes by. Now, a Levite is, would be like a, a seminary professor, right? A seminary professor who's teaching pastors, the next generation of pastors would be the pastor. He comes by, and he doesn't, he just walks around the beat-up person, and he doesn't do anything to change his circumstance, right? And then comes the priest. That'd be like a local pastor. He walks by, and he doesn't do anything. And then comes the Samaritan. And a Samaritan was in the minds of Jewish followers of God was like a half-breed. These were where Jews had married Gentiles, and and these were like people that were hated. But the Samaritan stopped, and he bandages this guy's wounds, 
and then he takes him to a local hotel and he brings in a doctor and he makes sure there's enough financial resources for this person to stay in the hotel for weeks. And he says, and when I come back, if there's any other financial needs, I'm going to take care of that. And Jesus looks at the lawyer and he says, who was the neighbor to the robber, right? And it's obvious, right? It's the Samaritan. It's the one who gave his, his time and his talent and his treasure to be compassionate to someone in need. And so compassion is the overflow that I'm a follower of Jesus. And why is that important? Because if you understand the gospel and you understand your sin nature and you understand what you deserved punishment-wise from a holy God, that you understand that God in Christ had incredible compassion on me, right? And incredible compassion on you. And so how dare us not be people of incredible compassion and compassion such that it actually costs us something from our time, from our talent, and from our treasure. Number three, James challenges us with this. He says our faith should not be that that has shallow conviction, There should be a deep conviction in our faith. Some will say that you have faith and I have works. Show show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. This is like good theology, right? Maybe you have good theology. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James is saying that faith cannot be verbal only, right? Faith cannot be verbal only. That's that's not real faith. I was listening to a podcast this week while I was traveling, and um, this person was asked on the podcast what he thought was um, different in American church a generation ago that is not the same as we worship now. And he said this. This was a fascinating answer. I don't know. Like, if I were to ask you, if I were to take a poll, like, what do you think a generation ago was different in the American church than is it now? And here's what this person said. He said, the difference a generation ago is when you walked into corporate worship, you walked past the graveyard. You ever think about that? Like, all the churches of old had graveyards around them. Now, got me thinking, like, hey, maybe we can buy some property over here in Kiln Creek and establish a graveyard in the middle. I'm sure I'm sure your county would love that. So that's kind of funny. So anyway, um, but, but his point was, as you attended church a generation ago, you were contemplating your mortality. And um, I thought that was really, really interesting. And... Um, it got me to thinking that, you know, one of the things that, and I say this a lot, that we do as pastors is we do a lot of funerals, right? And so because of that, I think as a pastor, you do think about mortality a lot and, and what you might want said at your funeral and things like that. And, and, uh, and one of the things that happens as I was thinking about this, man, I have faith in, in, in uh, a lot of people have faith that's verbal only. There's no outward expressions. And and so what is, I've done this kind of funeral many, many times, very, very common, is I'll get called in to, a, to do a, a funerary, funeral of a family member that wasn't a regular attender of Coastal. So like the attender of Coastal is a family member saying, hey, my, 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 my dad passed away, my mom passed away or whatever. And I'll get called in to do the funeral. And I'll often say, well, so tell me where they attended church and worshiped the Lord. Oh, they, they didn't attend church anymore. And then a lot of times when that happens, I'll get this long explanation about how they, they're Christians, and everyone knows they're a Christian, but, but their, their faith was private, 
it was just between them and God, and um, and then they'll begin to tell me that you know you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, right? And I get this long thing, and and so can I just say like that's absolutely true. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. We learn that from the thief on the cross, right? Thief on the cross dying next to Jesus, confesses Jesus as Lord. And in that very moment, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Like, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. However, when I do that kind of funeral, here's what I say. And I say it to the living. Because the person's passed, they're already before the Lord, and, you know, their, their decisions have been made. I say to the living, I say, listen, if you're here at this funeral, and you're a Christian, and you're private about your faith, I want to encourage you to share it with others. One of the ways that we let others know that we have believed and received the gospel of Jesus Christ is by regularly worshiping the Lord Jesus in a local church. To be sure, this does not save you, but man, does it give comfort to those around you on, your, on the day of your funeral that your faith was active and alive as you regularly worship the Lord with other believers in a local church. Isn't that true? Is that true? It's true, right? And so you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but man, there's a, there is an overflow that when I see you guys here worshiping and we're worshiping together and we're singing out together and we're submitting our lives to the word of the Lord together, that I'm like, man, it's our, your faith is active. It's, it's at least active enough to get yourself out of bed, go to church, fight the traffic, fight the children's check-in, and worship the Lord with other believers, right? Our faith cannot be, and going to church is not the only thing. There's thousands of other things. But going to church, a wise person takes so seriously their eternal destiny that they, they say, man, I want my faith to at least be active enough to gather with other believers and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. James reminds us that facts about God without submission to his will is not real faith, right? You can have lots of facts about God. You can have good theology. You can have your, your Bible memorized. James even says the demons have some good theology. It's, they're theologically correct enough to know that God is one, they're theologically correct enough to know that they're going to shudder at the awesome, terrifying holiness of God. But their theology is incomplete that it doesn't transform them into worshipers of God. You know, it, it would be arrogant of us to know, to have head knowledge that God is holy, I am not, and you are not. God could have left us in the state that all we get, and it would be fair and right and just, that all we would get is punishment from God. Yet God, in his grace and mercy and love and generosity, sent his very best gift, his one and only son, who lived a perfect life, no place to lay his head while here on the planet, giving up all the royalties that God deserves as as the ruling and reigning king, took on flesh, died in my place, and took the active punishment of God for my sin and my rebellion. They placed him in a grave. Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering the final uh, 
the final enemy, which is death. And for me to know that story and not fall to my knees and worship God in thanksgiving and praise. That would be a very foolish oversight in our lives. Amen, church? And so how arrogant. And then that, that faith that all that God has done for me in Christ then doesn't integrate into all of my life. That goes back to James chapter 1, verse 4. Remember James 1, verse 4? Count all joy, my brothers, as you go through various trials. Why? Because God is doing something. He's making us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James doesn't mean there that we're going to get through life at some point and we'll have some day of perfection. But rather, our faith is going to be fully integrated in our lives. We understand that our faith in Christ touches everything. touches our free time, our entertainment, how we view sex and gender, our parenting, our money, uh, our, our workplace, how we drive, every what we laugh at, what we don't laugh, like every, it, uh, faith in Christ touches everything. It becomes fully integrated. And James says, only a foolish person, a person that thinks foolishly, verse 20, would just understand the gospel and its implications, and either say, A, it doesn't apply to me, or B, it doesn't apply to this particular area of my life. I'm going to date how I want to date. I'm going to sleep with who I want to sleep with. I'm going to do with my money as I want to do. It just it just kind of doesn't touch every area of our life. And, and James says, man, that is a foolish, empty, defective faith, and it lacks productivity. Now, James finishes with three illustrations. I, I love these illustrations that he gives us in verses 21 to 25. The first two are Old Testament characters of people who acted in faith. And here's why I love these characters. The first one's Abraham and the second one is Rahab. And if you know your Old Testament, this is why, um, you know, I, uh, you know we, I think sometimes we highlight Old Testament characters, and we forget to consider that they were people too. Like Abraham, and the story that we're going to, James used to highlight, it's an incredible story where he lived by faith. But there are plenty of times Abraham didn't live by faith. There's plenty of times the overflow of his faith was disobedience. He lied about his wife. I mean, he did all kinds of things that were sinful. And then Rahab, who even the story that highlights her, she told a lie in the middle of the story that highlights the good things that she did. And I love that because as a person growing to be more like Jesus, there's so many failings in my life that I love the idea that God looks at my frailty and is gracious and merciful to me. Amen? And, uh, and he looks at the faith that I do have and the times that it's lived out in obedience and says, man, that's active and it's growing faith. So James chapter 21, two, two of the three illustrations. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quote of Genesis chapter 15, by the way. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And so Abraham uh, was, as you know, in Genesis 22, he was told God made a promise that out of through Abraham, all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. He was him and his wife couldn't get pregnant, but they were going to have a son. They didn't have a son until they were much, much older, Isaac. And they have Isaac. They're celebrating the fulfilled promise of God. 
She, Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, says he believed God. This is the great doctrine of justification, and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness, okay? And then in Genesis 22, after Abraham has Isaac, God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. Abraham obeys the Lord. He's going to sacrifice his son. And just as he's about to fi finally and fully do what God has called him to do, God shows up and says, don't sacrifice your son. He provides a ram in the thickets to sacrifice and worship the Lord. I love what Hebrews says about Abraham. The book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 actually says that Abraham believed that God was capable of raising Isaac from the dead. Isn't that cool? Because here's why that's cool. That is the completion of the gospel. Right? It started out, he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness, all the way to the end where he says he believed God and God could raise him from the dead. And we find out through Jesus that God can and will and indeed will raise the dead. Isn't that great news? And so when we talk about, man, abundant life, abundant life is as I walk with the Lord and trust him, the Lord fulfills his promises. Not always easy, but he always fulfills his promises. And then there's eternal life that Christ will fully and finally fulfill all his promises, vanquishing our last enemy, death. And we know that we have eternal life in Christ. Isn't that great news? And, uh, and so one of the things I always say is the opposite of faith is not fear. The opposite of faith is disobedience, right? How do I know that the Lord's going to provide for me when I give my money away? How do, I, how do I know I have faith that God will actually provide for me? It's by actually giving my money away. Anybody? Right? How do I know that I actually believe Malachi 3.10 where, where, where God says, hey, test me on the tithe, see if I won't bless your socks off. How do we know that we actually believe that? We actually do it. And then when we do it, we're saying, man, that, I have faith that the Lord is going to be good to his promises for us. The second illustration is Rahab, right? And Rahab is, she was uh, in the city Jericho and Joshua is going to send the, uh, so Moses, the first generation, disobeyed God in the wilderness. We're going to see that in Exodus this next coming winter as we're making our way through Exodus. And, uh, and so that, that, that generation didn't get to go into the promised land. God raises up Joshua, and Joshua gets to lead the people into the promised land. And they get to Jericho, and Joshua sends in some spies to see how they can take Jericho. And the city of Jericho gets word of it, and they start looking for the spies from the nation of Israel. And Rahab, because she believes God, hides the spies, and when they come to her house, she does the very spiritual thing. She's like, yeah, they're not here. And, uh, and, so, and so she hides them, and in that, she trusted the Lord. She showed that she had the fear of the Lord. She was identifying with the people of God, and she acted in faith to protect her, and her faith showed itself to be bold and daring. And then the final illustration is letter C that faith brings life. So James finishes this in James chapter 2, verse 26, his final illustration. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so that's that final illustration that how does our bodies have life? It's like there's the spirit that gives life. But the same way that faith is alive and it's demonstrated in the works that we do. I am... Um, I hate examinations, and uh, and so I, when I was going to Puerto Rico this week, I was reminded that there's this 
portion of traveling through an airport that I genuinely hate, and it's the it's the TSA portion, right? You guys travel and you know they strip you down, they make you take your shoes off. It feels like you're taking off way more than that, but you're just like I feel like I'm naked here without my shoes, and uh, stripping everything down, and then you you put your you you put your um, your carry on in this X-ray thing, right? And as it's wheeling through, I don't know if any of y'all have this sensation, but I feel my anxiety start to go up a little bit, and I'm like, please, did I put anything in there with four ounces of liquid? Oh God, please keep it all under 3.2 ounces of liquid, you know? And your anxieties are going up in the examination. Or have you ever been to a, a convenience store and you? You uh, give them a 50 instead of like a 20, and they hold it up to the light, right? And they're examining your 50. I don't even know what they're looking for. Like, I, is, what exactly? Some of y'all, I'll get an email. Someone's like, Pastor, dummy, this is what you're looking for. So anyway, but, you know, like they're holding it up, and they're like, man, I sure hope my 50's good. You know, I didn't think about this and getting examined. And um, um, there comes a day that we get examined before God Almighty, and your life's going to be held up to the light of the holiness of God. Right? You're going to go through the TSA machine. And the word of God has declared what can be in that package called life. And I can tell you most assuredly, um, when Sean Brown's life gets examined, there's going to be plenty of things that like, man, I fell short. Oh, that's in there. And that wasn't supposed to be in there. Right. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that you have not failed the test. I, can be, I think if we're honest, not all of the works of our lives declare that we know Jesus. In fact, every time we sin, we're actually declaring in some ways, I don't believe in Jesus, right? And so Paul says we ought to examine ourselves and, and see if Jesus is in us. And one of the ways that we know that Jesus is in us, there's a couple but one of the ways that we know that Jesus is in us is when you think about your examining before God Almighty, and I think it's a good thing, and Paul says it's a good thing to examine yourself, is that if, as you think about your examining before God Almighty, if you kind of come to the conclusion, my only hope is that God is true to his word and that I, I am saved only because of the person and the work of Jesus. That's one of the ways we know I'm in Christ. If we're honest about our own condition and we say, man, there's stuff in the life that shouldn't be there. There's things I should be doing that I'm not doing. My only hope is to magnify and rest in Christ alone. Amen, church? And so here's what I want to do. I want to take, it's going to finish a little similar to last week. I just want us to bow our heads and close our eyes and... want to do what I think James is encouraging us to do, but it finds its fulfillment in Paul, the Apostle Paul, where he says, examine yourself. If you are on trial for being a Christian, 
be enough evidence to convict you. So let's just pray about that this morning. The psalmist writes, test me, search my heart, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. That's a serious and terrifying thought. we can go out of here and change the whole world in one moment, but just like the starfish story from a couple weeks ago, we, we can make a difference to that one. We can make a difference with our children this week. We can make a difference with our spouse. We could make a difference with our coworker. We could make a difference with the neighbor that we see needs help. So God, we ask you to search us and test us, examine ourselves. God, if we're honest in that examination, we come to the conclusion that indeed my only hope is Jesus Christ. righteousness by grace alone through faith alone and then as we meditate on Christ by the power of your word and community and the Holy Spirit God I pray that you would then change us to be more like Christ to be people of tenderness compassion walking in the good works that you prepared for us to walk in we may display Christ to the world around us. And now, God, as your church, we're going to go out this morning declaring with our lips through song how much we love Christ and magnify Christ and exalt Christ. And it's in Jesus' most precious name I pray. Amen. Let's go out singing this morning. Let's stand and sing. If you need prayer this morning, our prayer team is available to you under the screens. Never leave here without being prayed over church. Let's go out this morning exalting Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing.